The first episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast published in July of 2021. So I've been doing this for just over two years now. Now, the idea for this podcast originally was to do it for my employer at the time. It was a way to keep me working, at least part-time, even though I had moved away. Now, ultimately, they decided to pass on doing a podcast, which led to me starting my own nature education business, Dispatches from the Forest, and as part of that, doing this podcast on my own. Now, I gotta admit, I always wondered if I would just be babbling into the void, or maybe at best just have a small group of family and friends who listened mostly just to humor me. But thankfully, that hasn't been the case. According to Podbean statistics, I've gotten listeners from all around the world, and as of the last episode, episode 56, we just passed 10,000 downloads. And since I don't have 10,000 friends, at least some of those must be strangers. Now, sure, for a big popular podcast, 10,000 listeners is nothing. Certainly not over the course of 56 episodes. But for little old me, that's amazing. And if I do say so myself, I think my former employer missed a great opportunity. So for this episode, to celebrate 10,000 downloads, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to recap some of those first 12 episodes and review some of the amazing facts that we've covered so far. Now, I won't cover each episode in detail, but just review some of the things that I found most interesting. And if you've already listened to those episodes, well, maybe you've forgotten some of those things, and it'll make you go, oh yeah. And if you haven't listened to those early episodes, well, hopefully it'll make you want to go back and hear them in their entirety. And maybe, just maybe, I can get the next 10,000 downloads in less than 56 episodes. I guess time will tell, but you know what? I'm just glad you're out there listening. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The very first episode of this podcast was all about cicadas. Kind of a strange place to start, maybe, but, well, first of all, I like cicadas. And second of all, in July of 2021, cicadas were making headlines. 2021 was the year of the 17-year cicada emergence known as Brood 10. All across portions of the Midwest and eastern United States, millions of cicadas that had spent the last 17 years underground were emerging with a singular focus. Make a lot of noise in an attempt to find a mate. Now, there are species of cicadas, known as annual cicadas, that emerge every year. These cicadas spend between two and five years underground before they emerge. But the cicadas known as periodic cicadas spend either 13 or 17 years underground. And when they emerge, it's an amazing thing to witness. There can be up to 1.5 million per acre in some areas. Now, nobody really knows for sure why periodic cicadas evolved to have such a long developmental period. It might be an insurance policy against predators known as predator satiation. Emerging in massive numbers means that most of the population is likely to live long enough to mate and reproduce, even if a whole bunch of them get eaten. The fact that 13 and 17 are both prime numbers may also prevent predator populations from syncing their own reproductive cycles with that of the cicada, meaning the cicada doesn't have to face more predators when they emerge or it might prevent hybridization between cicada species. 
Periodic cicadas emerge earlier in the year than annual species. They're gone, or at least done mating, by the time the annual cicadas emerge. And the timing of different periodic broods makes them highly unlikely to encounter one another. 13 and 17 year species only emerge at the same time every 221 years. Then of course, there's the cicada butt fungus. Massospora is a parasitic fungus that infects about 5% of cicadas. Interestingly, each species of cicada has a corresponding massospora fungus. So the fungus that infects periodic cicadas lays dormant in the soil for 13 or 17 years, waiting for a brood emergence. Nymphs become infected when they dig their way to the surface and encounter the waiting spores. The fungus grows inside the cicada's abdomen, rendering the infected cicada infertile and eventually causing the rear part of their abdomen to fall off, revealing a white chalky plug which is the fungus producing spores. The fungus also produces two compounds, cathinone and amphetamine, and psilocybin, the hallucinogen found in magic mushrooms. So an infected cicada is basically hopped up on amphetamines while also experiencing a long, strange trip. This combination makes the cicadas go into a mating frenzy, which spreads the spores of the fungus. My entomologist friend calls them flying salt shakers of death. Sounds to me like the next installment of The Last of Us. In episode two, I talked about the incredibly smart birds in the corvid family, crows, ravens, magpies, and blue jays. These birds have been shown to have intelligence that is equal to that of great apes and not that far behind humans. They've shown they can not only solve complex problems, but they can also make tools. Corvids are truly amazing birds, but there were two things that stood out to me when researching for that episode. First is that some corvids, particularly crows and magpies, hold funerals for their dead. When a crow or magpie discovers a dead member of their species, it calls loudly to attract others. Up to 40 birds can gather, all calling loudly. Sometimes they'll preen the dead bird or lay pieces of grass near it. This can last up to 15 minutes before the birds disperse. It definitely makes you wonder what they're doing. Are they, in fact, grieving? Nobody really knows. Maybe it's just selfish, kind of a, hey, who died? A dead flock member could mean an opening in the social hierarchy and an opportunity to move up a notch. Or they may be assessing a potential danger, trying to determine if there's a threat nearby that needs to be avoided. What's interesting to note, though, is neither magpies nor crows react this way to dead birds of other species, only to one of their own. You would think that if they were looking for danger, species wouldn't matter. But you know what you do call this when crows do it? A murder investigation. Because it's a murder of crows. It's a murder of never mind. I think the real question is, does it matter why they gather? Whether they're evaluating a social void, assessing potential danger, or mourning the loss of a friend, any of these reasons shows how smart they are. Now, my other favorite thing about crows is that they can not only recognize faces, they seem to understand that humans are all different and need to be approached differently. And in fact, it's been shown that crows will hold a grudge against someone they deem dangerous, and they communicate this to other crows and even pass it down through generations. In 2006, pairs of researchers netted, banded, and released seven wild crows. The researchers wore identical masks, which they referred to as the dangerous mask, even though its expression was neutral. 
During the banding process, the researchers were visible not only to the captured birds, but to other crows in the area. And over the next three years, researchers would periodically walk a route that included the territory the crows were trapped in, either wearing the dangerous mask, no mask at all, or a neutral mask, and then they would record the response of the crows in the area. Prior to the trapping, the researchers had walked these same routes, wearing the same masks, and noted that less than 5% of the crows in the area would scold someone in the mask. Within the first two weeks after the trapping, that number increased to around 26%. Just over a year later, that figure was up to 30.4%. And three years later, with no additional interaction with the crows since, the number of scolding crows had grown to a whopping 66%. Even 14 years later, one of the original authors noted that crows will aggressively scold someone wearing the dangerous mask. The lesson here is, be nice to crows. Episode 3 was all about some underappreciated animals, including the bird with the most unfortunate scientific name, Turtus migratorius. I also said the words bifurcated penis. If you want explanations of all that, you'll just have to go back and listen to that episode. In Episode 4, I talked about one of my favorite mammals and one of the most misunderstood, coyotes. In my experience, misunderstanding breeds fear, and fear in turn breeds hate. Coyotes are extremely adaptable and survive even in some very dense urban areas. There's an estimated 4,000 coyotes within the city limits of Chicago. This means coyotes are the largest predator that most of us are likely to encounter. Add their shy nature and haunting howls, and people think that if they see a coyote, that there are dozens more hiding in the bushes, waiting to attack their children and household pets. And, as it turns out, humans are terrible at estimating the size of a coyote pack by listening to them howl. Because of the way coyotes howl, changing pitch and tone mid-howl, people think they're hearing about twice as many as they're actually hearing. The reality is this. Coyote packs are a family unit and average about six animals per pack. But they don't hunt big game in a pack the way wolves do. They hunt smaller game, usually singly or in pairs. As for danger to people, in the United States on average, less than 10 people per year are bitten by coyotes, and there hasn't been a death from a coyote attack since 1981. 49 people per year are killed by lightning every year, so you're literally more likely to get hit by lightning than to get attacked by a coyote. And don't get me started on deer. Deer are responsible for over 200 deaths per year in the United States by causing traffic accidents, and they remain, to this day, the only wild animal to knock me off my bicycle. Will coyotes eat your pet cat? Maybe, but if you've listened to this podcast before, you know my feelings on that issue. Feral and free-roaming cats are an invasive species. If you're worried about your cat, it's simple. Keep it inside. Will they lure your dog into an ambush? Again, it's possible, but also again, you can protect your dog by keeping it on a leash or in a fenced yard and supervising it especially between dusk and dawn when coyotes are most active, or if you know that there are coyotes in the area. Now, inspired, if that's the right word for it, by a deer that died in my woods, episode 5 was all about what I called the carrion crew, the variety of things, insects, birds, and mammals, that do the dirty work of cleaning up those carcasses. 
Vultures are the most visible of these animals. While vultures may on very rare occasions take live prey, they are in general obligate scavengers. If you look at a vulture's foot, it's clear that this is not a bird built to hunt. Their feet are relatively flat and weak, and their talons are short and relatively dull compared to other birds of prey like hawks or eagles. And while they get a bad rap because of their association with dead stuff, vultures are able to digest toxins like anthrax that would make other animals sick at best, or at worst, the vulture's next meal. Okay, sure, they poop on their own legs to keep cool and kill bacteria, but hey, nobody's perfect. And the turkey vulture has one of the best scientific names, Cathartes aura, which translates to cleansing breeze. My other favorite critter from episode 5 was the American carrion beetle. Between a half and one inch long, they're black with a yellow head that has a black spot in the center. They look a lot like a wide and heavily armored lightning bug. Adult carrion beetles emerge in the spring after overwintering underground. From mid-spring to early summer, during their mating season, adult carrion beetles will seek out a carcass. When they find one, they mate, lay eggs, and then eat any fly larvae, maggots that is, that have hatched. Adult carrion beetles remain on the carcass for as long as it lasts, feeding on the larvae of their competition in order to give their own offspring the best chance of survival. Carrion beetle larvae feed on both the carrion itself and also on the larvae of other species. Carrion beetle larvae especially like to eat the dried sinew, skin, and hide left behind after all the fly larvae have left. Eventually, the carrion beetle larvae drop to the ground and burrow into the soil to pupate. Hey, it's a dirty job, but somebody's gotta do it. Since we were getting into spooky season, episode 6 was about bats, and episode 7 was about spiders. The Latin name for bats is Chiroptera, which translates to hand wing. And this reflects the fact that unlike the rigid structure of a bird's wing, a bat's wing is actually a modified hand. This lets the bat twist and morph their wing while in flight. It provides less lift than a bird wing, but much, much more maneuverability. We kind of take for granted the fact that bats spend a lot of their time hanging upside down. But what I didn't know until I researched that episode is the adaptation in their talons that helps make this possible. Their tendons are connected only to the upper body, not to a muscle like it would be in other animals. To hang upside down, a bat flies into position, uses its muscles to open its claw and find a surface to grip. To get the talon to grab hold of the surface, the bat simply lets its body relax. The weight of the upper body pulls down on the tendons connected to the talons, causing them to clench. The talon joint locks into place, and the bat's body weight keeps them closed. The bat only has to use muscles to open the claw and release the grip. In fact, a bat that dies while roosting will remain hanging in place unless it's jostled loose. To take flight, bats simply let go. It's less like taking off and more like falling and then missing the ground. Arachnophobes may want to skip episode 7, although it may give you a better appreciation for our eight-legged friends. And you should learn to live with them because, unless you're in Antarctica, there's probably a spider within 10 feet of you right now. The coolest thing about spiders? All spiders can produce silk, even though not all spiders make webs. And some spiders can produce up to seven different kinds of silk, which they use for different purposes. 
Some is the sticky silk used to catch prey in webs, but other types of silk are used for building the frame of the web, for structural components, attaching joints, the soft inner layer of the egg sac, the tougher outer layer of the egg sac, and for drag lines, the web that a spider uses to lower itself from a high place, usually to escape a threat. And for its size, spider silk is stronger than steel. Spider silk is also electrically conductive. Since flying insects tend to gain a small static charge, this means they don't necessarily need to run into a spider web in order to get caught. If a statically charged insect flies close enough to the web, the static charge will pull the web into the insect. How cool is that? And hummingbirds use spider silk to build their webs, so we need spiders if we want to keep our hummingbirds. By episode 8, we were approaching Thanksgiving, so I talked about turkeys. What are caruncles? What's a snood? Do the ladies like a big snood? Did I mention that male turkeys grow beards? If you want the answers to these questions, you're going to have to go back and listen to episode 8, I guess. In episode 9, I did something a little bit different. As part of my training for the Virginia Master Naturalist program, I had to research a naturalist, and I picked Adolf Murray. The more I learned, the more interested I got, so episode 9 was dedicated to Adolf and his half-brother, Olaus. Born in the late 1800s, these brothers played a vital role in not only the creation or expansion of several national parks, wilderness areas, and wildlife refuges, but also in the way that we manage wildlife within these areas. Olaus Murray's accomplishments included things like being part of the first expedition to cross Labrador in 1914. He was one of the first biologists to suggest that caribou, elk, and many other large animals need ample space, and that to ensure the survival of these species, we need to preserve their habitat. His work studying elk in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, resulted in the classic book The Elk of North America, and earned him the unofficial title The Father of Modern Elk Management. Younger brother Adolf would also grow up to be an accomplished naturalist. In 1934, Adolf was hired as a wildlife biologist by the National Park Service, and in 1937, he started a study of coyotes in Yellowstone National Park. So now you see why I like him. At that time, even more so than now, coyotes were considered pests, and they were killed by any means available, including shooting, trapping, and poisoning. In his book, The Ecology of the Coyote in the Yellowstone, Adolf concluded that coyote predation didn't significantly affect prey populations and had only a negligible impact on elk. Furthermore, in the conclusion he wrote, quote, the national park system is charged with the responsibility of preserving designated areas, selected samples of primitive America in their natural condition for the enjoyment and study of present and future Americans. In line with high purpose, the flora and fauna should be subjected to a minimum of disturbance, unquote. This did not go over well with coyote haters. His next study was on wolves, an animal even more controversial at times than even coyotes. From 1939 to 1941, Adolf collected detailed field observations on the interactions between wolves and doll sheep in Mount McKinley National Park. Again, he concluded that sheep population decline was not, in fact, a result of wolf predation, as was widely thought, but instead by severe late winter weather. And furthermore, predators played an important role in an intact ecosystem. 
These results would eventually be published as the book The Wolves of Mount McKinley. These two studies led directly to the termination of predator eradication programs in both Yellowstone and Mount McKinley National Parks, and although he didn't live to see it, his work laid the scientific foundation for the eventual reintroduction of wolves into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the late 1990s. Which, not so incidentally, was the subject of episode 10. Wolves and the impact they had when they were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park is one of my favorite topics. Almost as soon as European settlers arrived on North America's shores, they set about extirpating wolves. The establishment of Yellowstone National Park in 1872 did nothing to protect wolves, or any other large predator for that matter. Hunting of game animals was prohibited in 1883, but predators were still being persecuted, wolves in particular, which had a bounty on them in most places. The last wolf in Yellowstone was killed in 1926, and wolves were mostly gone from the lower 48 states by 1960. Minnesota is the only state to have always had a viable population of wolves. Now, Yellowstone provides a finite space that allows us to easily see the difference between the absence of wolves and the presence of wolves. The ecological impact of wolf removal didn't take very long to become apparent. Elk populations began to rise, and they started having significant impacts on the landscape. Scientists visiting in 1929, just three years after the last wolf was killed in the park, and again in 1933, reported that, quote, the range was in deplorable condition when we first saw it, and its deterioration has been progressing steadily since then. In the absence of their main predator, elk were not just multiplying, they had no fear of being out in the open. They lingered along the streams and rivers, so species like aspen, willow, and cottonwood, which grow in those areas, suffered severely from overgrazing. Relocating and culling elk, the standard practice for elk control of the Park Service for over 30 years, helped prevent further damage, but it didn't do anything to improve the conditions in the park. These practices were discontinued in the 1960s when hunters complained to Congress, and predictably, the elk population rose and the environmental conditions deteriorated. The reintroduction of wolves to the Yellowstone ecosystem was over 50 years in the making, but finally came to fruition in 1995 when 14 wolves were released into the park. After being gone for nearly seven decades, wolves were back in Yellowstone. In 1996, another 17 wolves were released in the park. Predictably, with abundant space and food, the wolf population in Yellowstone rose rapidly, peaking between 2003 and 2007 at 174 before decreasing and leveling off. Since 2009, the wolf population has been relatively stable, generally around 100 wolves in 10 to 11 packs. The return of the wolves not only decreased the elk population through predation, the presence of the wolves changed the elk's behavior. They no longer lingered in the stream valleys. They were pushed into less favorable habitat, and their birth rate decreased as a result of the predation pressure. This allowed the streamside vegetation, aspen, cottonwood, and willow in particular, to regenerate, stabilizing stream banks and reducing erosion. Beaver, which had disappeared because of the impact of elk overgrazing, returned to the park like magic, going from zero beaver in 2001 to 100 by 2015. 
It blows my mind that you can trace an increase in water quality in Yellowstone to the reintroduction of wolves. And that's what brought me to episode 11, which is all about those little dam-building rodents. Well, not so little since they're the largest rodent in North America and second largest rodent in the world. Like wolves, they're also a keystone species. Beaver build dams primarily to create a pond of still water where they can build a lodge, and they're driven to build the dam by the sound of running water. The lodge keeps them safe from predators, and the pond provides swim-up access to their food sources. But ponds also create habitat that is used by many, many other animals. A lot of amphibians, like frogs, toads, and salamanders, prefer beaver ponds for laying eggs because they contain fewer fish that might eat the eggs. Studies have shown that owls, kingfishers, herons, egrets, and other birds were found in greater numbers where beaver were present. Also like the wolves, they were at one point hunted almost into oblivion. Unlike wolves, though, it wasn't because people feared and hated them, but rather for the sake of fashion. From the mid-1500s until the mid-1800s, felt hats were the height of fashion, and the most sought-after material for these hats was felt made from beaver fur. Little-known fact, the American Revolution was partially sparked by England's refusal to allow colonists access to beaver hunting grounds west of the Appalachian Mountains. When the colonists arrived in North America, there were an estimated 60 million beaver living here, and the landscape looked vastly different. One of the things beaver do best is keep water on the landscape, meaning that a lot of places, especially in the central and western United States, that we would think of as dry, would have had significantly more water on the landscape. Lewis and Clark, in their 1805 expedition, described seeing beaver dams in Montana basically as far as they could see. But just 50 years later, Beaver were scarce in the lower 48. And then there came the paratrooping beavers of Idaho. You'll have to listen to learn more about that. Episode 12 was the last episode of 2021 and was published shortly after the winter solstice. In the spirit of the season, the topic of that episode was about how animals survive the winter. While some animals, mainly those with wings like certain birds and bats, depart for warmer climates, some animals stay put and either remain active or hibernate through the cold season. But there's one common factor that ties these three groups together, and that's food. Animals that stay active all winter are those that are able to still find food. Migration happens because the primary food source for that animal, usually insects or nectar, isn't available in that particular place during that season, so they go where the food is. Hibernators pack on the pounds when food is plentiful in the fall, then reduce their metabolism and mostly sleep the winter away. In that episode, I talked about the difference between hibernation, torpor, brumation, and diapause, along with some of the amazing adaptations that allow animals to hibernate, or in the case of some frogs, to freeze nearly solid and come back to life in the spring. Well, my friends, I do hope you enjoyed this recap of the first 12 episodes. Even I went, oh yeah, a few times when I was putting this together. Thank you all again for helping me get to that 10,000 download mark. I literally couldn't have done it without you. And if you haven't done it yet, remember to click on those buttons that say like and follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. 
If you're feeling motivated, leave me a comment. It's still and will always be free. Telling a friend to listen is also free, unless, of course, they hate this podcast so much they never talk to you again, and then it costs you a friend. But that seems unlikely. Tell your waiter, your local ag extension agent, the cop who just pulled you over, and the greeter at your local Walmart. These are all good candidates. Some other ways you can support the podcast. Check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at just $5 a month, and after three months, you get some cool logo merchandise. You can find all the info at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address, and also how you can contact me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Check out our merch store and get some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. It can be found by going to cafepress.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.